Open up with me in your copy of Scripture to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verse 30 through 50 today. Verses 30 through 50. It's good to see returning new faces. I look out and I know where some of you have sat for many years and you haven't been there and you're back and it's good to see you back. Have you ever been schooled? You're familiar with the term schooled. I don't mean by that taught math, although maybe you got schooled in math. I mean something more like what happened to me yesterday when I drilled a hole through my garage wall and hit a gas line and had to call a friend who schooled me, and then I called Dan Wilkin who schooled me, and I've got multiple people at my house trying to help me keep the thing from blowing up, and we'll be just fine. But I got schooled yesterday as a handyman in my own house. Now, I looked up a definition of what it means to be schooled on one website. It goes something like this. Being taught the proper way to perform an action through extreme ownage and embarrassment. This requires the schooler who is always of such a high level of skill that the schoolie has no chance of saving his reputation to utterly dominate and then show no remorse. If remorse is shown, it is done in a cool and laid back way, as in to say, you're not even worth the effort. That's what it is to be schooled. Well, it happens on the basketball court for sure. And it happens on the page here, albeit for different reasons and with different motives and in a different spirit entirely on the path of discipleship. The Lord Jesus schools all of us today. Let's begin. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing uh, on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down. And called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, uh, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, we begin our leg of the journey through Mark today with one big misunderstanding. One big misunderstanding. You have to feel bad for the disciples at this point. I mean, this is the second time Jesus has spoken plainly about his death and resurrection, and they haven't understood it. You remember a few weeks ago, I said, we'll see this happen three times on this side of the book. Jesus will instruct on his death and resurrection. They will not understand it. And then he will teach them about the path of discipleship and following him. This is one of those instances. Just wanted to point out that little pattern there. I wasn't lying. In this case, this is the second time Jesus has told them about his death and resurrection in plain terms, and they haven't understood it. Now, why haven't they understood it? This is why I feel kind of bad for the guys, although I'm not sure Mark wants me to feel bad for them. But just consider the journey they've been on. Uh, Jesus has been speaking to them in riddles. This is how it's gone. He speaks of a seed and a sower and they don't get it. And he explains and he tells them they've received the secret of the kingdom. And he's telling parables. Uh, He's just little stories with veiled meanings that are for them. And he'll explain them as they go often enough. Or other times he speaks to them about the leaven of the Pharisees when they're in the boat. And then they start arguing about who forgot the bread. They're not tracking with him. He said, bread, who forgot it? They're missing his point. Time and again, Jesus is speaking in veiled ways with images and they've got to look under the surface and then they're embarrassed that they didn't get it. Well, here Jesus is speaking in plain terms, but it's not obvious to them. He says, the son of man must suffer. The son of man, that calls up Daniel chapter 7. When in a vision that Daniel has, this son of man, this king representing the people, receives the kingdom, an everlasting eternal kingdom. Heaven, heaven's king breaking into the world and all things being made right. But the son of man must suffer. That's not what they were expecting. It's a riddle, is it? What is he doing? What is he saying? They don't understand. You can see how they might be confused. I think of Steph Curry dropping the ball this way and then breaking the guy's ankle when he moves that way. Jesus is breaking their ankles. You can see how this would happen. Well, easy enough. If you misunderstand somebody and don't understand, you say, well, can you please explain? I don't know what you mean. And then you say, well, you're going to have to explain that too. I don't know what you mean. Why are they doing that? Well, verse 32 But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They were afraid of Jesus. So why were they afraid to ask him what he meant? Well, we might might ponder why. Um, They're his disciples and they're supposed to know. 
Um, you know, imagine someone getting hired for a job that they were unqualified for, and you show up and someone asks you a question. You just try to, you just try to act like you know what you're doing, and then you text your friend. How does that thing work again? I mean, there are some scenarios we find ourselves in where we kind of feel like we're supposed to be competent. We just keep our mouth shut. We cross our fingers. And that may be what's going on here. They're his inner circle. They don't get it. We'll figure it out. Jesus as well was very serious in these remarks. He's talking about getting killed. He's doing it again. It was a very serious tone. It didn't feel like the kind of thing to follow up with a question on. And then I wonder if they just didn't really want to know what he was saying. Look what happens next. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? You can imagine, um, you only have to ask that when you're far enough away, right? So it must have been Jesus, they're following him. Jesus is up on the path a little bit. And they're following behind having a, you can hear enough that they're having a conversation, but you can't hear the details. Of course, Jesus knows. And they kept silent. Jesus is talking about his coming suffering and they're arguing a bit. They're concerned with their status in the kingdom. Jesus, you can just imagine it. He's on the way of his cross and he knows where he's going to battle sin. He's going as it were into battle. You can imagine what that must feel like. You ever been on a battle scene and you try to imagine what it was like way back when? When I visit a battle scene on vacation, I'm in a completely different mood. I'm ready for Chick-fil-A in a few minutes and we're going to turn on the video in the car or whatever. And that's a different day than when the battle actually took place in that place. Well, Jesus and his disciples are on two totally different wavelengths. Jesus is headed into battle. He is aiming at Jerusalem. And his disciples are battling one another for first place, as it were, in the processional. They just don't get it. How do we know they don't get it? Well, we're told, but all we have to do is listen to what they're talking about. All we have to do is observe their life on the path following Jesus. You see, it's possible to be on the path following Jesus and to not be on his wavelength. It's possible to be on the path following Jesus and to be having a conversation that is entirely inappropriate for what we're doing here. And so, of course, friends, we've shown up here this morning and you believe the thing I opened the service with, that God takes away our sins through Jesus We know Jesus suffered on the cross. I hope you know that. But maybe we should slow down a little bit because this book was given to the early church. It was given to disciples like us. Apparently, we need these lessons too. You can listen to our conversations and watch our life on the path to see how much we get it. Jesus is a good teacher and he is schooling all of us this morning. We move now from one big misunderstanding to four simple, simple lessons. Four simple lessons for life on the path of discipleship. Four simple lessons for an otherworldly life. These things he's going to ask of us and instruct us in don't make any sense unless he is heaven's king and unless his gospel is true. Four simple lessons for our relationships with one another in the room here. 
Four simple lessons for the life of our church here at Heritage. Four simple lessons that would make a difference between a church that you love going to because you love the people and there's peace. And a church that you bear with because there is no peace. And maybe you're part of that problem. Those are hard days for churches when we go through them. But the way out is right here. So let's get schooled today. We've been on our feet with Jesus on the way. We've been on our feet with Jesus in a house. Now Jesus, verse 35, sat down. So let's sit down. You're already sitting. I'm standing. I'm going to stay standing. He sat down and he called the 12. You can imagine the 12 circling up. Okay, guys, we need to talk. And he's going to teach us all. Well, the first lesson, what a child can teach us about following Jesus. Each of these lessons has a very simple prop. The lessons are carried together with catchphrases and they're sort of stitched together with catchphrases. You recognize a number of these. And then each of them has a, has a prop that Jesus gets out. I'm not much into props. If I ever use a prop, I might use a prop. Jesus used props. Don't expect me to use props. They can be abused. But Jesus used one for each of his lessons here. All right, what a child can teach us about following Jesus. Now, when we think of a child, what do you think of? I think we think of innocence, precious children. little dependent creatures, innocence. What might they have thought of in the first century? Innocence might be a word. It wouldn't be the first word. A better first word would be insignificance. Children were dirty. They were dependent. They took. All those things are still true. But they were insignificant. They had a less romantic view of children. At our worst in the West, Americans tend to idolize our children. They can do no wrong. That's ridiculous. Christians who read the Bible know that and know ourselves honestly know that. Right or wrong, they had a way more chastened view of children. And insignificant would be the word we would put on it. This is not a lesson from Jesus, as maybe we might think immediately, on how to treat children and welcome children into the kingdom. This is about how we as the church welcome and treat anyone of any status. Jesus has grabbed someone within reach that is of the lowest status and stature within that culture, and it is a child. They cannot make something to contribute. They cannot pay for what they take. They are enough trouble, and he picks a child. It is a matter of status, not innocence or preciousness. This is not about children. This is about status and receiving one another in the kingdom. Just consider the context. They were just talking about who's the greatest. So he takes the least great, a child. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Well, verse 37 Whoever receives one such child, he's got the child, his arms around the child on his laps. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, 
but him who sent me. And so we have here in these words here from Jesus with a child on his lap, words concerning how we are to receive one another. We're to receive one another in Jesus's name. That is to say, on his behalf, for the sake of our King, for his glory, with his tender personal care and concern. And we find out why. Well, look at this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Well, just consider that, how personally Jesus takes, how we receive one another. It's hard to think we'd have to make eye contact and greet every person that we see on a Sunday morning. I think we'd all, well, that's impossible. But can't we all do better? Um, There was even someone this morning I saw whose name I forgot and decided not to lean into that and just ask their name again. Um, Just ask the name again. You're greeting Jesus. He takes it personally. I was speaking with someone recently who had various encounters with people from a church they were attending and knew to, various encounters with members of that church around town, and they would greet them and then be met with darting eyes and, and read that as rejection, and maybe they should have. I tend to wonder if it isn't just people not remembering their name. How sad is that? So let's just ask each other's names again. Greet each other in Jesus' name. He's the one who matters the most. His name is the most important one. We can get each other's names, even if that's a little embarrassing sometime. So let's do better eye contact. Let's do better with names. Let's do better with greeting. And with Jesus' care and Jesus' concern and his interest for his sake and on the king's behalf. And you never know who you're greeting on a Sunday. We could spin around on that theme for a while. And how wonderful it is to know that God takes it as personally as he does. He is personally blessed when we receive one another on the Lord's day. Two paradoxes we've come into then already. The first shall be last. And when you receive the last as the first, you're actually receiving the first. You're receiving Jesus and his father. That's good news. That's encouraging for Sunday morning, isn't it? That's a reason to get here early and to greet one another. We're good at being here on time. Let's get better all the time at being here early. There are people to greet in Jesus' name on Sunday. Well, what can a child teach us about following Jesus on the path of discipleship? Well, church is not a place where we are regarded for what we bring to church. It's not a place where we are regarded for what we bring to church. It's not a place where we are regarded for the pocketbook that we bring or the skills that we bring or the height that we bring or the personal sense of style that we bring or the shade of melanin that we bring, or the degrees in education that we bring, or our connections within the community that we bring. 
of whatever value you offer to your workplace, and you'll offer some, some of those things contribute to what you're paid for during the week. Those things don't matter here. It is not that they don't matter. It is that we are here in Jesus's name. And the big accent in the New Testament isn't so much on our variated differences, although we have different spiritual gifts that we bring to the table, but on our incredible unity in Jesus and the lofty place that each of us has. In a real respect, Christianity levels the playing field. Where else can you go and get this? In this room, the playing field is totally level, but it is not low. It is elevated and high. And it's higher than any of us find ourselves throughout the week in any other relationship or, or sphere. So church is not a place where we are regarded for what we, for what we bring. But we are regarded here because of Jesus' name, his wealth, his accomplishments, his connection with his father. I need to read to you a verse from James chapter two. You can turn there with me. It's toward the end of your Bible. You got Revelation working from the back and then first, second, third John, first, second Peter, and then James. In James chapter two, you know, John who is with the disciples here getting taught, and James were called the sons of thunder. Probably not a compliment. Maybe a little tongue-in-cheek? I don't know. But they both got this lesson. James got this lesson. Here's how James shot it out in instruction to the church after Jesus had ascended. He said, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, he's the glorious one here. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Now listen to this. And to become judges with evil thoughts. You know, I read this and think, um, you know, I'm not involved in seating. I don't think our people would be, I don't imagine anyone saying, go ahead and sit at my feet. You can sit at my feet. Um, And I pray we would welcome uh, men and women, rich and poor. But I'm thinking here at a leadership level, hopefully, I pray we would take the same interest in anybody. We ought to. One person shouldn't get a lunch. And I'll tell you that there is no conversation like this that has happened in this church that I'm aware of. Someone gets lunched because uh, they might be a high roller. So if you're a high roller and we do lunch, I'm not thinking of that at all. Like it's the last thing on my mind. Or working to resolve an issue with somebody 
you know, a, 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 result, a, a problem that somebody has with someone else in the church. It is never a part of the equation that there might be some financial cost to this not going well. Or if somebody needs to be confronted in sin, it is never a consideration how much they gave to that thing. It is never. I can give you that assurance from my seat. But let's all be in on this and not make distinctions among one another in this room. He uses the rich and poor piece here. And there are all kinds of other ways that we are tempted to make distinctions among one another. And let's just not do it. Jesus' name is good enough. Praise the Lord for that good news. Let's get back to let's get back to Mark. Back to Mark chapter nine. That's our first lesson. Let's move on to the second lesson. What can a cup teach us about following Jesus? What can a cup of water teach us about following Jesus? In this case, John speaks up. So you imagine Jesus landing the plane on his lesson like we just did. We've, we've landed the plane on a lesson. It was quiet for a moment. And uh, John speaks. Okay, John, uh, he raised his hand, let's say, and, and he speaks. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I can't tell if this is just... You know, like in kindergarten, the kid spits out the next thing in their head. Or he was excited to share with Jesus what he had done, or if it's sort of a veiled confession, uh, because this is not good, as we we will see. It seems unrelated. I mean, children can be demons, but children and demons don't go together exactly on the page. But they do go together. I want to put the emphasis on a word here. Teacher, we saw some casting out demons in your name. See these catchphrases I'm pointing out? There's all these ways that this teaching is strung together. He's a lovely teacher. Some casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following, here's the word, us. He was not following us. a son of thunder with James, John here, a zealous man, is zealous for his group. He's zealous for his tribe. He's zealous for his clique. It's good to be zealous for your church. Oh, be careful though. It's good to thank God for your church and to brag about your church in the right way, what God is doing here, boasting in Jesus. Be careful about just being excited about your church. The first lesson had to do with me, me, me being first. This second lesson has to do with us, us, us being first. Do you see it? You see, here's how John sees what was going on. John is a part of Jesus's fave 12. Okay, Jesus has 12 numbers in his phone and John's on the list. This group of disciples should have the corner on the market for spiritual influence. And they like the influence that they have. As far as he's concerned, if somebody is going to have spiritual influence, 
This is a franchise situation. They've got to go through us. We'll handle it. We'll approve it. We'll know what's going on. We'll regulate it. You wonder as well if John isn't a little embarrassed, if there wasn't a kind of a punch in the gut. Uh, Because it was only a week ago that these guys couldn't cast out a demon. (laughs) And now someone else is doing it and he's trying to obstruct it. Cut that out. It's on us. We got it. Well, here's how Jesus sees it. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever is not against us is for us. I've read that before and thought, that sounds like a low bar. In this case, just consider there's no middle ground with Jesus. It is either for or against. There is no somewhere in between. Good with Jesus and forget about him between Sundays. It's all in or not in at all. It's all in or it is against. And as Jesus sees it, he's saying, it's just just play it out here. He's saying, guys, he's casting out demons. He's doing it in my name. So he's one of us. (laughs) So he's all, leave him alone. Like you don't know his name, but he's not speaking ill of us. He's not making trouble. He's not against us. He's for us. You see how this works? So Jesus has established the 12, and that's for a variety of reasons, including practical reasons. But this is bigger than the 12. And no, they don't have the corner on the market. And I suppose that's a good thing because we get to be in too at Heritage because we weren't a part of the 12. But here we are. And then you've got this thing about a cup of water. What does that have to do with, what does that have to do with this little lesson? This is what can be a little annoying about this string of teaching is you have an object lesson and some instruction. It all kind of makes sense on its own, but it doesn't always all seem to fit together. So what can we learn about following Jesus from a cup of water? Well, follow me here. Consider that following Jesus is going to get harder for the disciples. And a cup of water might be hard to come by. And consider that you and I are going to need a cup of water. And we're going to welcome that cup of water from any brother and sister who's giving it to us because we know Jesus in Jesus' name. And that cup of water might come in the form of anything. A show of goodwill, support, the encouragement we need. It's your friend at work who believes in Jesus and is at a different kind of church. And it's the church downtown that's faithful to the gospel. It's the church around the corner that's faithful to the gospel. It's the church across the way that's faithful to the gospel. Where the sounds and the feel is quite different or even some of the convictions and beliefs at a secondary level are different enough that maybe you wouldn't go to church there and that's okay. But those are our brothers and sisters if they're preaching and believing the gospel and it's going to get harder on the path and you might need a cup of water. So do you see it now? They're obstructing him because he's not following us. Do not stop him for the one who doesn't, does a mighty work in my name will soon af, won't soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. 
The one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And there will be reward for that person that we may be obstructing when they help us out and show us goodwill. So let's be a church that prays for the faithfulness of other churches, even prays for bad churches. And by that, I mean churches that have left the gospel, but there's some history there and maybe a gospel to be recovered. Let's pray for the faithfulness of other churches and let's celebrate the fruitfulness of other churches. There are some awesome things happening in the lives of churches around town. I meet with a couple pastors across the month or the year in different times. I'll have little spats of visits and some that are more regular. And it's always exciting to hear about what's going on in their places. And sometimes it's bewildering how you all can be competitive. (laughs) You're not largely competitive, but it can be that way. I go to this church or I have a friend who's a pastor and there's there's one guy in his church that is like way too loyal to his church. I'm like, he just needs to go to another church. You need to kick him out for six months. Don't take that seriously. We don't talk about kicking people out. The point is, is that uh, you can be a little too loyal to your club, right? That's what's going on here, I think. His tribe, his club, his clique. This is where the action's at. Oh, the action's all over town. There are good churches all over. You hear about a good church across town? Don't think you're not also in a good church. Just expect God to be growing fruit where the gospel is faithfully preached in all kinds of ways that look all kinds of colors uh, with all kinds of shapes uh, all over town. And praise God for it. And cheer it on and pray for more of it here. And then say, pray for our church. God's at work here too. You know, it's not like sports and sports teams. The kingdom is not. Uh, Speaking with a gentleman in our church uh, some time ago had somebody from farther away ask him, so what is, what is your differentiation strategy at your church? What is your differentiation strategy? Which I thought and he thought was a hilarious question. <laughs> like, like we're in it to be different from that church down the street. Like we'll, we'll copy that thing that's good over there and copy that thing that's good over there and, and we'll be different from them. And what are the best practices? We try to be simple. We're an ordinary means of grace church we talk about. We give ourselves the big, simple things and we'd be okay letting a whole lot of the extras go. We know how God works and we seek to trust him for his means, for his, his work. The thing is, our differentiation strategy actually might be the thing that differentiates us sometimes. I'm not talking about other faithful churches. I just mean that prioritizing the preaching and the praying and one anothering and relationships and holiness is, is not necessarily the bread and butter of every church with a property, but you can pray for those churches that may, may come to mind. Now, our differentiation strategy is this. Jesus is better than the false gods that our neighbors serve. And the spring of life that Jesus offers is better than the broken cisterns that they drink from. And we want them to know him. And we're good and happy for any church with an eyesight or across town to preach that same gospel. And we're all in this on the same team together. Do you see it? Don't obstruct good things happening in other places to prop up this work here. Although I'm glad for you to be excited about what God is doing here.
All right, that's the second lesson. Now a third, a third lesson, fire. What can fire teach us about following Jesus? What can fire teach us about following Jesus? If the first lesson was uh, uh, cutting against an impulse to put me over you, and the second lesson was cutting against an impulse to put us over them, the third one cuts against an impulse to put now over eternity. And that's a dangerous thing to get in the wrong order. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter crippled than with two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And he ticks through your foot and other organs, your eyes, and the list could go on. We learn here about sin, what it is. Sin is a spiritual thing. It is an offense against God, but it's physical too. It's something we do with our bodies and, and these fleshly bodies can be involved in our, our temptation, but they're also relational sin is. So we read this in isolation, it works, but we tend to think of the sins we commit against ourselves and in secret. But, but this whole context is a social context in which they're, they're one-upping one another and looking for pride of place in relationship to each other and where they're, they're uh, obstructing some other church's good work. And at the end, he'll exhort them to be at peace with one another. The point is, is that the sin, think of sins in terms of your offenses against your brothers and sisters and family members and people. They're in relationships. We see where sin leads. It leads to hell. If you embrace a life of sin and don't fight it, it's a sign that you don't know Jesus and you will go to hell and you will burn an unquenchable fire and it'll be terrifying and horrible and it'll be forever, and it will be just. Your sin is against God. My sin is against God. Let us not think that we get into the kingdom by somehow getting rid of sin. That's why Jesus is going to a cross. And this story happens within the context of the whole book. Jesus will go to the cross to take our sins away from us. But as those who follow him, we fight sin. I remembered a quote while I was singing. Let me get out of my phone. John Owen, let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath smitten once a serpent, if he follow not his blow until it be slain, may be taken again. Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin does not negotiate. You do not meet it halfway. Mortification. In other words, it's actually, don't cut off your arm. That's not the point. But it's better to mortify yourself. It's better to have something unthinkably painful like this happen than to experience the outcome of a life lived for and in sin. So don't think you can come to church and spend your life one-upping one another and seeking to be first and make it into the kingdom of God. Those are not the ones Jesus has saved. This is a community of servants. Everyone else is first but you in this church. And we all say that together. And of course, Jesus is ahead of us all. So what does fire teach us about the path of discipleship and following Jesus? 
Well, it teaches us that the path is not a walk in the park. Sin remains and it must be fought. And it also teaches us that it is worth fighting. There's another lesson here about purification. He uses fire in a different way in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Fire has a purifying effect. I think that's what this means here. I can't help but hear Peter's words in 1 Peter. And by God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And in this we rejoice, though for now, a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials, including persecutions, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. I think that's what's going on. It'll be salted with fire. Don't let his change of topic mess with you too much. He's teaching. He's stringing beads along and there's little overlapping words here. But that's something that fire can teach us. And that's an encouraging kind of fire, even though it's hard right now. That's the third lesson. Now, fourth, salt. What can salt teach us about following Jesus? Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt, salt preserves, salt is, is, it gives flavor. And if salt doesn't have saltiness, it doesn't preserve and it doesn't have flavor and it is useless. And the church is salt in the world. There is a preserving effect that God provides in common grace and in grace to our neighbors through the presence of a faithful church and faithful Christians in their jobs and in their everyday life. But there's something really radical here about the role of the church in the world. Be at peace with one. Have salt in yourselves. Have salt amongst yourselves. Be salty together. Be at peace with one another. Here we started arguing on the trail. He sat him down for a talk and he's talked to him about life together in the church, life among one another. And he ends with these words, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And that is what Jesus is teaching us today. Brothers and sisters, don't come to church to put yourself first. And don't come to church thinking that you're last and not noticed and not significant and don't belong here because maybe someone else has propped himself up over you. That wasn't Jesus doing that. Jesus is over us all. Don't come and prop yourself up. Don't come because this is a great church and that one's not. And don't come and think that it isn't a fight, that we aren't on the path of battle with Jesus. This is really serious. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to his death. It's the way of the cross and we're on it with him. And it's a sobering thing to be on the path with Jesus. It is a battle and it is a fight. And if the Christian life is hard for you and if relationships in the church are hard for you and if your own sin is hard for you, well, look at the page. These guys needed to get schooled and you and I do too. They were confused about the path. We may struggle with sin and wrestle with it, but let us not be confused. Let us not misunderstand Jesus. Let us not know. Let us, excuse me, know exactly whose path we're on. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray to you, our great God. And we have been greeted in Jesus' name this morning, and we have been welcomed here because of him, and we have been assured of our forgiveness because of his cross. And we thank you for that. We thank you for forgiving our sins and giving us peace with you. And we pray that you'd give us peace with each other, that you would make us to fight sin, that you would make us to not seek our kingdom first, but yours. That you would make us to see your hand in our church so that we would recognize it in other places too. You would make us a salty church, a preservative church a beautiful taste in our town to our neighbors, to anyone who pops in, that this isn't something you can get anywhere else. We thank you that Jesus has talked frankly with us today. We pray that we would hear and understand. It's in his name we pray, amen.